Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast, the first of many in 2017, and Happy New Year. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor to Investors Chronicle, and special guest Ben Yearsley, Investment Director at High Net Worth Investment Service Wealth Club. A new year can bring new things, and in the investment world, it looks like there will be quite a few of them. The political landscape has altered, with more potential changes on the horizon. Inflation is up, rates are starting to rise, and bonds are looking decidedly less attractive, among other things. So bearing all this in mind, Kate has been putting together our suggested investment themes for the year. Kate, what are your suggested investment themes for 2017? So broadly, they're the US, we've got Japan, value investing and emerging markets in Asia Pacific, and also higher yielding bonds. So I have to ask... Why did you pick the US? Shouldn't we be really worried about that region of the unpredictability and upheaval that Donald Trump's presidency looks like it's going to usher in? Yeah, well, that, that is something to bear in mind. And um, this is definitely quite a kind of high risk play, I guess. But there is a broad consensus among kind of many analysts and commentators that, in fact, the kind of America first policies, I guess, that um, Trump is bringing in, and particularly this kind of big fiscal stimulus, massive kind of spending plans could be be very good for domestic US companies. So really what we're saying here is this is a bet on kind of smaller domestically facing um, US stocks rather than maybe the ones in the S&P. And it's it's that way that we've chosen to play this. Okay. And are there any other things other than Mr. Trump's promised reflationary fiscal stimulus that could boost US equities? Um, Well, I mean, that's really the kind of broad thinking and it just this kind of I guess, recovery play um, in the US, you know, we're probably going to have more rates rising, inflation is on the up. So it's it's really that that we're thinking of here. Okay. So if Trump's presidency might actually bring some benefits to investors, what are the risks of investing in US equities? Uh, well, I guess the risks are that, as I said, this is kind of a bit of a consensus at the moment, the, the domestic US story. So a lot of this optimism, and there is a lot of optimism, I think, um, is baked into the valuations on these stocks. Um, people are kind of anticipating um, a big boost for smaller companies. So if his policies fall short, um, if a lot of them don't happen, uh, you know, we could have a lot of volatility and we probably can expect quite a lot of volatility um, in the US market throughout the year. So it's definitely not going to be an, an easy ride, I think. Okay, Ben, what do you think about the US? Is it a good place for investors to allocate to at the moment? I think Trump's plans are interesting. I mean, obviously, you wind the clock back three months and, and pretty much similar to Brexit, everyone was talking about disaster for the markets if Trump got in. And you had that on day one. And then we've seen an all-time market high again in the last month. Um, if he gets through his tax-cutting plans and his infrastructure spending plans and some of his other plans, so he's talking about um, obviously lots of U.S. companies got billions of billions of dollars of cash overseas, and he's talking about a tax holiday for them to bring it back. You know, all, there's lots and lots of positives out there if he gets his plans through. Negative side, and, and, and the reason why actually Kate was talking about probably U.S. small and mid-cap companies and domestic ones more so, um, is obviously that will probably lead to a strong economy, will lead to a strong U.S. dollar. And you've already seen it today, actually. You've, you've had good uh, jobs and wage numbers out today, and the dollar's boosted again, and treasuries have fallen. Now, obviously, that makes U.S. exports less competitive. So there's a flip side, which is, yeah, uh, as Kate Wright pointed out, you know, the domestic story could be the interest is the interesting one with job numbers great wages coming through a reasonably strong economy 
that's probably the place to be. Okay, so if investors decide to invest in US equities, how should they do it? Um, I think the issue of this area is that many active fund managers fail to beat US indices. Um, Should they go for a tracker fund? Um, Yes, Uh, in some instances, definitely. You're quite right. Very few managers have consistently beaten the market. Um, If you want broad US exposure, going for a tracker fund is probably not, or an ETF is not a bad idea, something like a Fidelity US Index or an S&P 500 ETF for broad exposure. But for more specialist exposure, going for sort of smaller mid-cap or slightly more aggressive or uh, approach um, would be an interesting way of doing it. And I, I personally favor the Leg Mason Clearbridge US Aggressive Fund, which is a, quite a concentrated portfolio of long-term holdings with a broad range of sort of mid and some larger companies in there as well. Um, but for a lot of investors, buying a tracker fund is not a bad option. Okay, and our listeners can look at our top 50 ETFs for some, some suggestions on passive US funds. Now, Kate, let's turn to another of your themes, value investing. Why are you suggesting this theme for 2017? Um, well, this is quite an interesting one because, and in fact, we've been talking about this potential shift or this shift, which I think arguably is underway from um, growth to value style investing for probably at least a year now. Um, but I think it properly is coming through now or is a good time to allocate. And I guess the real shift here is, as we've been kind of alluding to, is this tick up in inflation, particularly in the UK, um, the potential for rates to keep rising in the US and much higher bond yields. So it's a real kind of shift in gear from money flowing out of those predictable bond-like stocks, which have been performing well throughout um, the past few years and performing well just because of this very low yield environment that we've had. Um, now, those stocks are now looking very expensive and we've had a bit of a kind of move into cyclical stocks, into higher yielding, for example, banking stocks for some of those more unloved and much less expensive stocks, which will do well if yields do keep going higher and rates do go up. So I think it is quite a good time to to make the move. And in fact, in 2016, value indices, so for example, the MSCI world value did outperform the MSCI world growth for really the first time in 10 years. I mean, there was there was one point in 2011, I think, when um, value fell by very slightly less. But really, it's the first time in 10 years that we've started to see that pull away. So um, I think it's arguably a good time. Okay. And um, what would be a good way for investors to play this theme? Um, well, so I've, I've chosen the Schroeder um, Global Recovery Fund. So it's managed by Nick Kirridge, Kevin Murphy and Andrew Lydon at Schroeder's, who have a very strong reputation for this style of investing. And they manage a, a kind of very solid um, UK recovery fund. So that's the way we've gone because we wanted to kind of look for a, a global equities fund rather than choosing one area, which obviously kind of concentrates the risk. Okay. Ben, do you agree that value investing might be making a comeback? Yeah, totally. What you find, Kate's right about the 10 years in that um, the the missing part of the equation there is that we've been in a rate-cutting environment for the last, well, certainly since 2007-8. And typically, and and sort of historically, value has done poorly in a rate-cutting environment and does better in a rate-rising environment. And that's where it's finally starting to turn. So you've had the U.S., Fine, you've had two rate rises in 12 months, not a great deal, but the, the trend is up and, you know, they're anticipating another three or four this year. Now, whether all those four come through, I don't know, but it looks likely from what the Fed is saying and looking at the job and wage numbers, etc. in the US, that more rate rises are coming through. And um, 
it's been happening for three or four months now. I started allocating more to value back in September, October, I think, last year, so 2016, so three or four months ago, and started buying that like, Schroeder Recovery and J.O. Hambro UK Dynamic, GAM Global Diversified, NMG Global Dividend, a few kind of more, much more value-orientated funds uh, to play on that theme. And, yeah, you're right, the banking stocks have recovered nicely, and, and many other ones in that sector have also done, uh, that kind of area have done well as well. So, yeah, I think now seems to be uh, not necessarily an inflection point, but you've had a strong run from these very defensive growth companies that have been looking a bit expensive, and those style will stay dominant for the long for forever kind of thing. And it, it looks like value is coming back more into vogue in the last few months. Okay. Um, it all sounds very exciting and some great opportunities, but what are the main risks of value investing? A uh, value trap is the obvious one in that a cheap stock uh, uh, stays cheap. It's as mm. simple as that. So you, you buy into mm. it thinking, that's looking cheap, that looks good value. And, you know, it needs a catalyst or it carries on getting cheaper and becoming more and more unloved. And have you and, and have you as an investor got the patience to hold on until it turns around? And a lot of investors, unfortunately, don't have that patience to wait. They're very sh- too many are too short term. So that's probably the key risk is mm. time. Have you got the patience or have you bought a value trap that actually is cheap for a very good reason? I.e. it's a poor company or a poor sector and remains cheap and doesn't actually turn around at all. Okay, so it'd be fair to say if you, um, you want to try your hand at value investing, have a long-term investment horizon. Totally, yes. Okay, thank you, Ben and Kate. And you can read more now investment themes of 2017 and eight fun tips with which to play them in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Now, you've also both been looking at what did well in 2016. So, Kate, first of all, what areas and funds did well over the last year? Um, well, fortunately, they've all done quite well. Um, our main areas were Japan, Europe, emerging markets, Asia Pacific, um, and we also had downside mitigation on our kind of slate last year, I guess. And um, all of those geographic regions have done really well. I mean, it's it's been quite a, a good year for returns kind of across the board. I guess areas to highlight um, would be emerging markets, which had a real rally throughout 2016. Um, areas like Brazil um, returning at one point, I think, over 100% in sterling. Things like Chinese banks doing particularly well as well. Um, so that was the best performing market in general. Um, our fund tips, I should say our fund tips across the board were kind of up by d- double-digit returns in general, apart from downside mitigation, which obviously you wouldn't expect to do that well. Um, in emerging markets, Newton Global Emerging Markets, for example, returned um, 21.2%. It's a slightly more defensive take on emerging markets than um, some of those areas which really rallied. So it didn't take part in, for example, Chinese bank a Chinese bank rally, but um, you wouldn't expect that, um, but still did very well. Japan was also another strong area. Um, I think Japan generally underperformed or um, kind of didn't do as well as people expected it to do. But in fact, in sterling terms, it's still up by, well, our funds are up by over 30%. So that's still a very strong return in sterling. Okay. Um, So um, a good year for our fund tips. But Ben, you've been looking at um, funds across the market. And um, I think you found that um, gold and commodities funds had done particularly well. Um, What were the main reasons for this? And can the trend continue to 2017? Well, there, there were two things. 
on that. Um, firstly, you've got to wind the clock back to the end of 2015, the last quarter, and coming into the start of 2016, and commodity companies were absolutely hated by the markets. They were, you know, nobody liked them. People were talking about a lot of the big ones, uh, Anglo-American, Glencore, you know, these massive, massive companies going bust. And uh, they started 2016 negatively, and it carried on for another six weeks into kind of mid-Feb, when it got really, really negative. And then there suddenly seemed to be a mindset change that things weren't as bad as everyone thought, and the recovery started. And since mid-Feb, lots of those stocks have, you know, returned five or six times their money. Uh, you know, five, a multiple of five or six times since mid-Feb has been a phenomenal run for kind of commodity companies. Now, I, I suppose commodity companies are very linked into China and Chinese growth. And there was always, again, going back to the beginning of last year, there was worries about Chinese hard landing and the banking system collapse and all that kind of stuff. And again, nothing like that materialized. So... And, that just helped push commodities upwards um, as an overall theme. Gold is slightly separate. We'll come on to that separately. So commodity companies today, I wouldn't say are looking expensive. I wouldn't say they're looking cheap. Um, they've all got, most of the big ones have got decent balance sheets. Uh, the global economy seems to be relatively robust is probably a, a reasonable word. Um, with good growth coming through from America. There's lots of talk of massive infrastructure spending in the US and the UK and various other places that should help commodity companies in the long run. So, uh, you know, the outlook is probably reasonably good, but I'd be very surprised to see them as the number one sector again this year. It's very rare you get the same funds and sectors as the top performers two years in a row. Mm. Um, So I'd be very surprised if it happened uh, again this year. But I, I don't see a return to the uh, the negativity that we saw at the start of 2016. Gold, slightly different, uh, slightly linked into the commodity story, but also uh, Brexit worries, Donald Trump worries, all these kind of things. Flight to safety, flight to quality. Don't forget mid-August, um, the uh, sort of a month after or two months after our Brexit vote, and with a few more votes in Europe coming up, uh, UK gilts, the 10-year gilt hit something like 0.5% or 0.6% from memory. You know, ridiculously low because everyone was worried about so many different things, flight to quality and gold benefits from that flight to quality. And it's, um, you know, it's stabilized since then. It's been quite a volatile asset class this year. Um, but gold has overall, uh, 2016, did a very, you know, gave a very good return or gold funds gave a very good ter- return for investors. Okay. Um, bearing all that in mind, should investors allocate to gold and commodities funds now? Or is it a bit late? Um, I think you've got to be wary of double counting. So obviously investors will have UK funds, they'll have European funds, they'll have US funds. They may already have, um, especially UK and uh, North American ones, might already have mining companies in. And therefore, you've always got to be wary of double counting. So whenever you look at a specialist fund, whether it's commodities, healthcare, financials, you've always got to be wary of what you already own in those spaces. Um, Gold, I think you buy as a defensive play if you're worried about the outlook. And actually, there are, you know, going into this year, there are many things on the horizon that could derail the market. So are Brexit negotiations, Trump taking office, um, more concerns about the Italian banking system. Uh, I mean, those are just three, uh, without even touching on, you know, 
politics in in Holland and France, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, if you're having gold in your portfolio is a relatively defensive play, and so I'm not against that as part of your portfolio. I've got BlackRock Gold in general, for example, in my portfolio, in my ISA. Um, commodities, I say, just watch out for the double counting element and don't buy it just because it's last year's best performer, which lots of people tend to end up doing. Okay, so um, what do you think is particularly good for 17 and, and why? I'm a, I'm a fan of emerging markets in Asia and, and the value play we've already talked about. So hmm. the emerging market in Asian kind of play is um, slightly predicated on US. So if the US economy is doing well, typically the global economy does pretty well. Now, you have got the issue of the strong US dollar, which is not normally good for Asia and emerging markets, but a strong global economy would be good for Asia and emerging markets. Um, I think the demographic demographics and growth stories are still intact. Um, you know, they have very little debt, very few debt problems. And, um, uh, you know, we've still got a relatively low oil price compared to three or four years ago, which, again, is great for countries like India and Indonesia, for example, two of the biggest, most populous countries in the world. Um, so I'm just a, I've always been a big fan of Asian emerging if you're a 10-year investor and the markets don't look expensive. And I say, I think with uh, um, a reasonably strong global economy, I think they, they could be good long-term plays. Okay, and do you like any particular funds for covering those regions? Yeah, so if you're looking at uh, at emerging markets, something like Jupiter Global Emerging Markets is just a broad-based fund um, with a with a very good fund manager. If you're looking at Asia, you can either go for broad Asian funds like Schroeder Asia Alpha Plus, Asian Alpha Plus, or Aberdeen Asian Smaller Companies, or you could even go for some country-specific funds like Jupiter India, for example. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of India. As a, if you're looking at a single country exposure, I'm a big fan of India for the long term. Um, so, that, yeah, those are the few that I would I would potentially look at. Okay, interesting selection. And bearing in mind that single country funds are even riskier than um, broad emerging market yeah, funds. Totally. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Ben, and thanks, Kate. Some interesting insights. This week's portfolio clinic features a couple who are seeking to generate a retirement income of about 30000 to 35000 a year from their investments. Ben, you were one of the experts who reviewed this portfolio, which is about £740,000 in size. So before even considering the underlying investments, is this sufficiently large enough to generate such a large income? Uh, yeah, actually, it's relatively easy. Even if you just invested in the FTSE um, 100, FTSE 100 today, which yields about 3.7%, you generate 20, over £27,000 worth of income from that portfolio. So that's not even doing anything clever with the portfolio. You could get you know, 80% of the way to the, the income that they need. So that size of pot is, especially because it's in the ISA wrapper as well, so it's all tax-free, the income's tax-free, is, um, is, is sufficient to generate... There or thereabouts, the income that the, that the, uh, the couple, uh, the, the case studies uh, required. And obviously, the more income you take, the less chance of capital growth you've got, though. So you need to bear in mind that if you wanted, say, 5% income from this, which is mm. you know, 37000 or thereabouts, um, and you're relatively young, your chance of capital growth is going to be diminished. But no, that pot of money is, is sufficient to generate the, the level that they're looking for. Okay. Now, um, just thinking more broadly, um, you know, about um, retirement income portfolios, 
what kind of asset allocation um, should you have to generate this? Well, I think it depends on age. So obviously with longevity increasing in the UK, you probably will last longer than you think, and therefore you need your money to last a long time. If you're in your you know, mid-80s, late-80s, and you're trying to generate an income, uh, then actually you, know, you can go for a, a, you know, maybe a more stable, higher-yielding bond portfolio because you might only have five years, two years, ten years, whatever the number is to live. If you're in the 60s and you retire and you're looking at generating income for your retirement for the long term, then you still need a very broadly based equity portfolio or predominantly in equities because you still need some capital growth probably uh, and income growth in your portfolio because of the effects of inflation over the long term. Um, as I said, you know, if you're taking 5% income from your, from your portfolio, you might only get 2 or 3% capital growth at best. Whereas if you're taking 3%, you know, you've got a chance of achieving another 3 or 4 or 5 percent capital growth over the long term, which should help your income to grow over the long term as well. So it's, your answer to the question is slightly age dependent. The younger you are, the more inequities. The older you are, probably, probably it's less likely that you will need much capital growth and therefore you can go for a portfolio that yields a higher level. Okay. Now, um, picking up on what you said about that, and in particular about bonds, you said these regions should increase their bond allocation to perhaps around 20% mm. of their assets. Now, there's a lot of concerns on bonds, and the asset class has had a good run already. So why such a substantial yeah, allocation? Yeah, well I, well, I agree with, I mean, those comments you made are perfectly valid. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of bonds, so it does seem counterintuitive to suggest it. But if you're putting a long-term balance portfolio together, you should have some in there to give you some diversification. Um, so it's really for that angle that it's in there, rather than being, "Wow, I've got to buy bonds today," because you're right. I don't, you know, I, I don't see a huge amount of value in the bond space at the moment. Um, I personally, at the moment, would, would go into strategic bond funds uh, that give the managers the opportunity to move around the credit scale and the, um, the risk scale, and even go short of the bond market, duration scale, uh, go short of the bond market, actually, to, ben- to benefit the fund if uh, the markets fall, actually. So I'd be looking at those kind of bonds to put into the portfolio, rather than slightly more traditional, say, investment-grade corporate bond funds that are more closely in tune in terms of capital values with, say, the gilt market, for example. Are there any particular strategic bond funds that you like? Yeah, there's three or four uh, uh, good ones in my view. So something like Jupiter Strategic Bonds. Um, Jupiter great, quite a few mentions today, aren't they? Uh, Jupiter Strategic Bond Fund is very good. Artemis Strategic Bond. Um, uh, there's a number out there. and My mind's gone currently blank. Uh, M&G Optimal Income is a very good fund. So yeah, there's, there's three or four very good bond fund managers who manage that type of fund to kind of, the, the, you're giving them the freedom to choose what part of the bond market to go into um, at different parts of the cycle, basically. Okay. Now, on the subject of income, these investors had quite a few UK equity income funds. Are they a good option for this kind of strategy as well? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, what do they invest in UK equity income? They invest in UK-listed, profitable, div- cash-generating, dividend-paying companies. You know, that's, your, that's the core of your portfolio, effectively. Now, you don't want to put it all into that because all your eggs are then in one basket or in one, one area. 
But if you're looking for long-term, any long-term portfolio, I mean, I don't take the income from my ISA, yet I've still got a good core of equity income funds in my ISA. They're just, it's just the place, you know, it, you invest in your home market for a big proportion of your assets, and that's investing a, a good core into, you know, these dividend-paying, cash-generating, profitable businesses. So, no, I, I, think it's, um, I think it's an ideal core to long-term portfolios, especially if you are looking at, you know, taking the income from that portfolio. Now, within that, there are different types of funds, and you'd probably want a mix of uh, funds that are large-cap equity income, funds that might be looking at medium size, and even some smaller-cap um, equity income funds within there. Uh, to, to give you a different mix of equities uh, and different styles of of funds, but yeah, I, I, in my view, it's a it's an ideal place to have a very good core of your portfolio. Mm, are there any downsides to UK equity income funds? Um, what's downsides to any fund? I don't think there's any downsides to equity income funds over any other type of fund. There's some very very good, you know, it's a very competitive space. There's some excellent long term managers there. Mm. Um, so no, I wouldn't say there's any. There's no downside versus UK or company funds or anything else. I, I, I wouldn't say. Okay, and and who would you suggest? I say you want you want, you want a mix of different funds in there. So you'd have a you know some of the core equity income funds like Artemis Income and and Woodford Equity Income. You might mix it up with something like River and Mercantile Equity Income, or if you want to go small cap, Chelverton UK Equity Income is an interesting one. Or even the Marlborough, Mike, uh, the Marlborough multi-cap income fund that looks at small, mid, and large companies. So you, you'd have a range in there to give you, say, different exposures to different parts of the market. Okay. Um, now these um, readers' investments are all held in ISAs. Is an ISA is that the ideal way to do income drawdown, or how else could you do it? Well, obviously, they, if, if you've got the money in the pen, in the pension, then you've got different options, but. These couple have the money in their ISA, therefore that's perfect. As tax-free, um, any income they take, whether it's from bond funds or, or equity funds, is tax-free. They don't get charged the dividend, the new dividend tax that came into to effect this year. So that's a very, you know, very good long-term place. What you don't get compared to your pension, if your pension saving, is upfront tax relief, and also your pension um, is IHT-free as well. So. Uh, if you're in your you know, 20s, 30s now, 30s, 40s now, and you're looking at long-term planning, you would have a mix of both. You put the money into the pension, you get the nice upfront tax relief, etc. It grows tax-free. The income, when it comes out at the other end, is taxable, as compared to the ISA, where the money you put in doesn't get any tax relief, but the income you get out is tax-free. So it's nice to have a mixture of both. You're locking up the pension for the long term. You can't touch it. Your ISA, you can dip into if you want to. So it's, you know, those two are your, for, for the majority of people, those are the two main areas to look at for your long-term income-producing investments in retirement. There are other more specialist areas. Um, venture capital trusts, for example, uh, are for more sophisticated investors. Um, they give you actually a combination of upfront tax relief and tax-free income, um, which is quite a nice mix, but they are for more sophisticated higher risk investors because they invest in very small companies. Is there any way to boost your time and income other than drawing down from an investment portfolio? Uh, you can obviously I mean, use your pension to buy annuities and there are certain uh, other types of fund where they um, boost the natural income by selling what are known as 
covered call. So a fund such as uh, Schroeder Income Maximizer, for example, uses the Schroeder Income Fund as its core and then sells call options on the holdings in the portfolio to generate a high level of income. Upside of that is you get a much higher level of income than, than the main fund. And there's a few of these kind of funds out there. Fidelity have a version and uh, there's a few others as well. So the upside is you get a higher level of income today. The downside is you're capit- capping the level of capital growth that you can get in your portfolio. That's helpful, Ben. Thanks for that. And um, you can see the best of Ben's suggestions in this week's Portfolio Clinic in the magazine and on the website. That's all we've got time for today. So it just remains to thank Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Ben Yearsley, Investment Director at Wealth Club. You can read more on themes and funds to invest in during 2017, what drove 2016's winners, and how to generate a retirement income in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.